There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Gut feeling. I felt it in my gut. Two common expressions that speak to a link between the gut and feelings, suggesting that somehow the gut and the brain might be connected in ways that are far more profound than the gut simply sending a message to the brain after a meal to signal satisfaction. What if the gut was a brain of sorts? What if your mental health potentially depended on your gut health? Could the gut be the next frontier of major advances in neuroscience? To discuss these and other questions, on today's podcast entitled The Gut, the Brain, and Mental Health, I'd like to welcome Professors Sean Hemmings and Anwar Mal. Sean is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Stellenbosch University, where she heads the Neuropsychiatric Genetics Research Group. She obtained her MSc and PhD from Stellenbosch University and has been involved in psychiatric research for the past 15 years. Her research interests include investigating the molecular biology of post-traumatic stress disorder and stress-related disorders by conducting genetic, epigenetic, and transcriptomic, that's a nice big word which she'll have to explain to us, and microbiomic studies. She also works on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Anwar holds a BSc degree with majors in physiology and biochemistry from the University of Durban-Westville. He has a BSc honors as well as an MSc in Surgical Sciences from the University of Cape Town and a PhD from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK. His research was on the role of mucus in health and disease in the surgical research laboratories of the Division of General Surgery at UCT, University of Cape Town, where he also trained honors, masters, and PhD students. He's taught at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels in the Faculty of Health Sciences at UCT. Anwar and Sean, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Anwar, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with you and with specific reference to a lecture you gave in April of this year, 2022, at UCT in the Department of Psychiatry entitled The Gut-Brain Axis in Relation to Its Structure, Function, Mucus Secretion, and Microbiota. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly. Microbiota, microbiota, I'm not sure. You'll tell me. And I'm going to extract from the, the abstract to the lecture, um, just to get some of the key words and phrases that I think require specific elaboration in order to set the scene for today's conversation, starting with what is commonly known related to absorption and excretion and building towards the possible role of the gut in mental disease. So Anwar, can you, can you define the gut? What is the gut? Yeah, that, that's an important question. So, um, you know, in school, we were told that we're studying the digestive system. And later on, people talked about the GI tract or the gastrointestinal system for short. But the gut always referred to the large bowel in the literature. But now I think the, the terms have become interchangeable. So when I speak of gut, I speak of an entire system that's composed of a conglomeration of organs like the stomach, the esophagus, the duodenum, the small intestine, the large intestine, 
rectum and anus. Right. So those are the organs of the gut, and they work together for one and one purpose alone. And that is to digest, both physically and chemically, to digest food, absorb the nutrients, and to expel the waste from the body. So it's a system, the gastrointestinal system, that I refer to when I speak of the gut. Okay, so there are multiple components to the right. gut. It's not just like a single tube. There are actual, or actual components, each one having specific function in terms of what they do, but everything having to work together to ultimately accomplish. Well, I'm going to say the primary function, but if one thinks about where we're going with this conversation, it, it, it may just be a function, which is necessary for survival of, 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 of the being, and that is the absorption, extraction of nutrients for survival and the excretion of waste that is no longer absolutely necessary for the individual. But of course, if we speak about absorption and excretion, more about absorption, we need to come to how does that happen? And I mean, obviously the gut is populated by bacteria, I think right. viruses, fungi. I mean, there's a whole uh, 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 society let me call it a society down there that operate together to perform these tasks. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on, yeah. on, on, on these yeah. uh, organisms, of which apparently there are trillions, yeah. trillions? Well, the trillions, you're, you're perfectly right. In fact, according to the literature, there's more bacterial cells than, than, than the cells that compose our bodies. That's remarkable. So, so we're more bacteria. And I like the idea of us being called superorganisms. It's like an ant society because we, we both have eukaryotic, eukaryotic cells and then we have these, this large population of bacteria. But one point I'd like to make when we talk about this tube, it is a tube. Yes. What is fascinating is, about, is that these different organs have a totally, totally different environment. Right. You know, my initial work was around the question, why does the stomach not digest itself? And from time immemorial, it was found that at the height of digestion, if somebody took a drop of the acid that was being secreted in the stomach and placed it on your skin, it would burn a hole through the skin. Mm. So why is the stomach? This is Horace Davenport and other people in the early years asked, why does the stomach behave as if it's made of porcelain? Right. <laughs> so, 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 you know, that is one environment. So that, that milieu is very harsh. So together with the, the presence of acid, which could go down to pH 1, um, and, and, and pepsin, which is activated from pepsinogen, which digests proteins, together with the physical activity of the contraction of the stomach, you have a tumble dryer in there. Huh. And the question is, the stomach doesn't digest itself unless you ill and have an ulcer. But there is something very special about the stomach that can protect itself. So we'll go into that. So that, that was my question. And one of the things that I had to study was the mucus barrier. Uh -huh. Now, historically, that was problematic because a lot of people, when asked what role does the mucus play, 
1959, there was a man called Hitley who just dismissed it and said, mucus is merely water. Don't even think about it. Mm. It only became a more serious question uh, in, in, in the late 70s. Uh, and, and, and I had joined UCT at that time. Mm. And uh, the work was being done in Newcastle upon time, the biochemistry of mucus. But, you know, before we start, can I just say that I've been very cautious about the history of everything I've learned regarding the gut. Because initially, when people who studied ulceration and the causes of gastric ulceration since the 1920s, there was a man by the name of Schwartz in Germany who said, no acid, no ulcer. Now, that was quite a thing to say. Mm. And it actually became... Uh, something like a religious doctrine. Yeah, a mantra. <laughs> because, because people started treating patients with antacids. And then look what happened. There was the development of a billion-dollar industry with H2 receptor antagonists, cimetidine, ranitidine. And they even went further and blocked the receptor on the parietal cell, which actually secretes acid. H2 receptor blockers. So omeprazole went into the parietal cell and actually blocked the pump that produced the acid. And, 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 and it was a whole hype and it lasted for years. There was a lot of money spent on it, a lot of patients treated with it until somebody found that you stop these acid blockers and you relapse and have your ulcer again. Uh-huh. Now, when I joined the Department of Surgery, Please stop me when you think I'm speaking. No, no, you keep going because you're giving us a, an insight into yeah. an part of an organ system yeah. that is so essential to, 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 to how we live and who we are and yeah. how we function. So when I was invited to join uh, the postgraduate unit here at the medical school at UCT by Professor Vilan Givas, um, his question was um, – why do people get gastric ulcers? Right. Right. Now, if you spoke to the surgeons, they would tell you, oh, it's acid. You Are you an anxious person? Anxiety causes hyperacidity. Yes. And that's how you get ulcers. Surgeons were actually cutting off the vagus nerve supply to the stomach. That's right. I remember. With highly selective vagotomy. Yes. So that you reduce your, 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 your acid secretion. And the patients that I came across, because I worked with a team of clinicians, could die from gastric ulceration, bleeding gastric ulceration. Having had the vagus cut, well, selectively. Vagus was cut selectively to to, to ameliorate the condition, to ameliorate the symptoms. And and, And yet they were still developing ulcers. They were still developing ulcers, but at least they survived. Right. They survived. But, you know, um, when, the, when the H2 receptor antagonists and omeprazole, uh, drugs like omeprazole, which blocked uh, acid secretion directly, came about, it went on for a long time until somebody discovered that you stop the treatment and there's a relapse. So the whole question was raised again. And the question was, if acid is such a bad thing, why did the good Lord give it to us? Right? Well, 
that's a very good question because usually that's a very good question because because no matter how sterile you have you take in food with all the cooking and all the heat that you subject and process your food with you still take in bacteria right. and that is why evolution has given us acid so they said well what are what are the defense mechanisms in the wall of the stomach should we be looking at that the ones that nature gave us rather than blocking a natural secretion yes so the focus was shifted on to things like the mucus barrier right and in newcastle upon tyne the laboratory there began to look at the biochemistry of mucus and they found that it wasn't mere water you scrape a layer of mucus off the surface of the stomach and hold up your slide it would trail to the floor mm-hmm. it's sticky stuff sticky sticky stuff only 200 microns thick eventually they found that it's a continuous layer right through the gut so it starts where in your saliva so it starts in your saliva and yeah. i must assume right they've even found it in the esophagus all the people think the esophagus is Creatinizing squamous epithelium, and so it can't secrete anything. The genes for mucins are there, and okay. people have done immunohistochemistry, found it there, and it's right through the gut. And can can you imagine, with all that activity in the gut, you hardly ever injure the mucosal lining of the gut. Mm. You you when 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 you digest food, or when you're expelling waste under high pressure. hard fecal pellets traveling down that gut and yet i used to say to my students when you finished in the bathroom say thank god for mucus <laughs> <laughs> so that mucus is pretty robust that's what i'm hearing i'm just I'm, i'm i'm very remembered for that because some of my students now professors and clinicians all over the world and they never stop reminding my daughters of that thank god for mucus <laughs> so, so 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 they looked at the mucus barrier and 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 people did a lot of study on it and and one of the pioneers was Adrian Allen in Newcastle upon Tyne and what he found is that the mucus secretion the crude mucus gel in your gut but I'm I'm, I'm sort of referring now to the stomach Mm. was a complex secretion it had proteins it had lipids it had nucleic acids it had dead cells so what gave it its stickiness mm. the gel forming component was called a mucus glycoprotein or mucin right mucin and it was only it only made up 1 to 5% of the total secretion but it gave it its viscosity and its elasticity right right so it stuck to the stomach wall and you know what's fascinating about mucin the glycoproteins 80% of it is sugar hmm. 80% of it is oligosaccharides that's where the link to the microbiota comes in because okay. microbiota love attaching to oligosaccharides and right? and microbiota can feed off mucin but it's extremely important to have a strong mucus barrier yeah the microbiota like lactobacilli strengthen that mucus barrier mm. 
They are those that destroy the mucus barrier. So we'll talk about that, and I think Cheyenne would know more about that than I do. Yes. So, 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 so that's how I entered the field. And the first time I heard about microbiota was at an international mucus conference in Cambridge, UK, in 2013. So this is very recent. So for me, very recent. So, th- so there was a young woman there, Dr. Natalie Juga, who came from Norfolk. And Natalie Juga worked for a man by the name of Simon Carding, whose whole thing about, uh, about, about the gut was fix your gut to fix your brain. And I became so interested. Natalie Juga presented a paper in which she found mucins being degraded slowly by bacteria that they haven't as yet identified. So I think that's really a big issue because, you know, we speak about the gut microbiome, but I think what we don't fully appreciate is just how, when I say complex, how many organisms and how many types of organisms there are, which I don't even think we've begun to fully understand. Shan, I mean, Sean, what would you say to that? Listening to yeah. what Anwar is saying, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm fascinated because Anwar, I mean, everything you're talking about sounds like you're just at the beginning of a story, but we're yes. jumping in, but we're jumping in now to, to no, no, kind no, of, it's lovely, it's lovely. Please we're, go ahead. we're trying to get into the, the issue of diversity yeah. and yeah. how that impacts upon yeah. well-being. So Sean, you know, jump in. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't actually know everything that is in, that makes up the microbiome. So when we talk about the microbiome, it is actually referring to um, not only bacteria, but bacteria, fungi, viruses, everything that's in there, um, and all their genes. Um, And the fact that they're living organisms and their genes can, they adapt by changing their genes, right? So we actually don't know, we are really just at the tip of the iceberg. We don't know everything about the microbiota or the bacterium, if we just want to talk about bacteria, yes. we don't know everything that is in there. Um, we know little bits, um, and often when we do these um, experiments, we can, you know, we have to we have to try and see what bacteria are in the gut. Um, it often leads to unknown. We we get we get species or genus or phyla that just says unknown. Right. Um, yeah. And then we have to kind of go and dig deeper to find out what's going on. But we don't yeah. actually know yet. Yeah. Um, and that's what's so fascinating about this whole field is that we don't know, but we are getting there iteratively. Yes. We are getting there and we are making making um, so, sense of it. So you know what is being evoked now in my mind? I'm thinking of Hubble's telescope looking yeah. out into the universe mm-hmm. and I'm seeing something equivalent going into the bowels of human beings to uncover this universe, actually. I mean, if we think about it like that. I mean, I've I've read somewhere that if you were to scoop out the entire gut microbiome, you're coming to something that weighs about two kilos, which is is probably, I think, I'm not quite sure how much the average human brain weighs, but I think there's probably some equivalence there. It's more or less, yeah. (laughs) More or less. I'm not sure if that's by design or if that's just an interesting coincidence. But I think what's also important in terms of the, the gut is that it's got its own what's called enteric nervous system. Mm. It's got its own nervous system which communicates with mm. the brain through the mm. vagus, through the vagus. And mm. so there is a constant 
crosstalk or, or, or communication between the gut and the brain that is happening all the time. Anwar, yeah. you spoke about... Uh, yes, uh, so, 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 so um, this man, Michael Gershon of Colombia, he introduced the idea of the gut being the second brain. Yes. And he says, imagine our lives without the gut because all the energy you need is produced there. That's how the brain functions. That's how the body functions. So he was very keen on this, but he had to provide evidence for actually claiming that it's the second brain. Right. So he said, well, look at the enteric nervous system, the Meissner's plexus, the Auerbach plexus. Count the number of neurons. They're the same in number to that in your spinal cord. So you see, that's, I mean, that's profound, actually, because I'm I'm not sure that the average person and I regard myself as the average person, yeah. contemplates that yeah. you have such a, such a nervous system operating in your bowel. Because I think, you know, it's, it's all about absorption, excretion, that's the bowel. And you know yeah. that stuff goes on down there and it can yeah. cause problems. Yeah, but well, I mean, he's, but he's I mean when you're talking about this nervous system that is equivalent in terms of, 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 of the extent to what is happening in your spinal cord, that kind of puts it in context. Yeah. So carry on, Yeah. No, no, Gershon says in his book, who would love the gut? I mean, nobody's going to write an ode to the gut. Well. The gut is not going to produce poetry. And if you look at it, it's an extremely unattractive system. Yeah. A slithery old snake-like thing that we Covered in mucus. From the <laughs> mucus. Don't say anything against mucus. <laughs> oh, we need it. <laughs> because I've been called Dr. Snot and Dr. Oh, boy. All sorts of names. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but so, 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 so there was this enteric nervous system. And what he found, uh, um, and, and, I, and I've always wanted to check this with the gastroenterologist, is if you cut off a piece of gut and leave it on a desk mm. or leave it on a bench. Yes you'll still see waves of peristalsis, that mobility, the muscle contraction. Right. So he says, if you cut off your vagus or cut off um, any communication with the brain, peristalsis still takes place because the enteric nervous system is so sophisticated. Right. Right? So it's got its own built-in intrinsic nervous system that if you cut it off from the brain, it doesn't make a difference. It's going to function. So, so peristalsis and a rich nerve supply, very rich nerve supply. But I think the height of his career was when he went to Oxford and he found serotonin in the gut. Ah, now, now, now we're getting into a very interesting area because I think that uh, there's another episode that we've done that deals with serotonin and specifically looking at antidepressants and, and what have you. And I think what was very important there was to make this point that 85 to 90% of your serotonin is in the gut or, you know, that the gut is actually a repository of this neurotransmitter. And so, therefore, this kind of uh, consolidates an understanding of the gut and the brain in one way at 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 a certain level is that this neurotransmitter actually operates in the gut, operates in the brain, they're linked And, of course, we know that certain psychiatric conditions, such as anxiety, can cause bowel problems, like irritable bowel syndrome, for example. I'm just just saying. So coming back to serotonin. So, Anwar, carry on with serotonin, and then I'm going to 
metabolites it's metabolites from the bacteria these are neurotransmitters mm. um the interesting thing about serotonin is that it's serotonin as the molecule as far as we know it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier mm-hmm. but what happens is that it's it's obviously can um it associates with the the vagus nerve so it sends signals yes. to the brain which can change neurophysiology um neuro you know cause neuro um inflammation and things like that but it also so serotonin is made from tryptophan right and tryptophan um can also make carnirinine carnuric acid and quinolone i think it's quinolonic acid right. which has been associated with depression um and increased uh stress and anxiety so in that regard it's also the whole serotonergic and the bacteria that creates the tryptophan um and that the pathway that goes from there and you know which kind of which direction it takes from there is also interesting because tryptophan can actually um cross the blood brain barrier so that's one way There's, where there is a connection as well. So your bacteria that reside in your bowel are doing all sorts of things that contribute mm-hmm. ultimately to, in this specific instance, we're talking about yep. mental health. But we know that serotonin is not just simply involved in, in things like mood. It's involved in libido, gastrointestinal yep. functioning itself, mm-hmm. gastric motility. So the bacteria are responsible for producing substances that actually contribute to the functioning yeah. of the body but it all yeah. starts with the bacteria but i think it also probably beyond the bacteria starts with what you eat because obviously those bacteria need a substrate to consume in order to produce the substances you were talking about yeah yeah so it all i mean we all there's there's a bit of controversy as to when bacteria start to um inhabit the bowel or the gut right. um some people say during pregnancy um the fetus yes. you know the the seeding starts then and some people say it starts during birth which is why you get such a difference between um in uh, babies who've been born by C-section where they've got a lot of more a lot more staphylococcus in their um guts mm-hmm. to babies who've been born by um na- normal birth right normal vaginal got, delivery yeah yes. lactobacillus and things like that so yeah. 
what's interesting about that, so that's the seeding, but your, your, during your first two or three years of life, it's your, your bacterium, your microbiome changes quite significantly because there's so many different, um, external factors that are going to play a role. Um, you know, you either breastfed or formula fed or you, um, you know, you start feeding on solids at three months or six months. So there's the, all this up and down that goes in the, um, the microbiome and it only starts really reaching some kind of equilibrium by about three where you've got more of a, a sense of what the adult microbiome is in right. within the three-year-old microbiome. Um, so yeah, it, it does change, but but what they have found is that the seeding um, is and can contribute to later life disorders like diabetes, mental health disorders, and things. So like that's that. what I wanted to touch on because what I've understood is that there is a link between the gut microbiome and early brain development, and that in fact colonization of the fetal gut happens to coincide with brain development during pregnancy. And so there is a potential link between any imbalances or any disturbances that could affect subsequent development and mm. ultimately lead to later emergence of psychiatric problems, which then begs the question about etiology, treatment, prevention. So your comments there, Sean, because now I'm, now yeah. I'm, I'm moving ahead to where I wanted to get to, but actually you've preempted and I think it's, <laughs> I think it's great because this is exactly, because this is really for me fundamental stuff that I, I don't think is well understood and I'm not going to claim that it's an absolute science, yeah. but it's just interesting that the colonization of the fetal gut occurs at the same time as brain development. And now we're talking about a link between the gut microbiome development and subsequent emergence mm. of, of psychiatric problems. So, Sean, yeah. take it away. So there, there is a large overlap, I mean, even after birth. Um, so it's not only the colonization. I remember we don't know. It, it is still controversial as to whether the fetus, the, the bacteria colonize the fetus right. uh, prior to birth, obviously. But during pregnancy, yes. the mom's diet is very important. And this is why it is so important to look after yourself during pregnancy, because obviously that is going to change. If you, if you don't have a great diet, it's going to alter your, um, your gut microbiome. Your bacteria produce metabolites, which could affect the fetal brain um, development. So it could be, we don't know, and it's probably a combination of both. It's probably the metabolites produced by the mom. Um, that can affect the fetal brain uh, development. And if we do happen to prove <laughs> conclusively that there is fetal um, microbiome um, colonization, then it's probably a combination of both. But even after the, the, the you know, in the neonate, you get this, this um, large overlap between brain development and the development of the gut microbiome. Um, so anything that can affect the gut microbiome at that stage yeah. could potentially affect brain development. So, um, and that is where the, you know, where it, where, where it could then, um, occur in later life that you get, um, psychiatric disorders because of that. So I think what we're talking about is really profound, actually, if, 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 if established, because it's got huge implications for how one, 
eat at a particular mm-hmm. time, specifically pregnancy, and what the impact could be on the developing fetus and ultimately on the adult arising from that uh, from that fetus. And I mean, aside from being something of scientific inquiry, we're now talking about potential practical implications in the sense that these are the things you should do, these are the things you shouldn't do. But I'm a little bit concerned that we become simplistic in that sense because there's so many factors that yeah. confound what constitutes an optimal microbiome yes. that I think we need to, 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 to really understand more, yeah. more fully. So, Sean, what yes. would you say and then Anwar? Yeah, so, you know, everybody is looking for what a normal microbiome, gut microbiome is, uh-huh. but we actually don't know yet. Right. Because um, is normal? Said, sorry, just to jump in there, would normal be one thing, or would that be person specific? It would be person specific. There's so much inter individual variation between your gut microbiome. It's so complex. There's a core microbiome, but we call the core microbiome, you know, those taxa that are maybe um, evident in 95% of a population. But what population we're talking about is very important yes. because your gut microbiome is going to change according to geography, yeah. according to diet, age. according to age, race, gender. The host, the host, sex is very important in the microbiome. Absolutely. The host genome um, has been found to influence your, your gut microbiome, in fact, your whole microbiome. So it, it is very complex and it's not, it's not a simple thing of you have this taxa, therefore you might, um, you know, this is a, your microbiome signature, um, puts you at risk of getting this disorder. You have to actually look at, at it holistically. And I mean, really holistically, which is the problem at the moment because we, we are getting there, but as with science, we're getting there slowly because we need to make sure at each step that we are, you know, everything is conclusive and we're doing the right thing. Um, I'll tell you what's coming to mind as you're speaking is this phrase, big data. It's like we need huge amounts of data and we need like a very sophisticated algorithm that kind of tells us exactly where you fit in on this spectrum of normality or what would be called Absolutely. Biome. Yeah. On what are your thoughts as we are unpacking? Yeah, no, no. I think Sean has made some very interesting points. I think it was Simon Cardin who also asked that question, what is a normal microbiome? Yeah. Because that's what uh, everybody wants to know. Yes. Because then and I'm going to be normal. Then I'm going to be okay. <laughs> Everything's going to be just perfect because yeah. we live in a world where we want perfection all the time. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so I'm just playing. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so in, 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 in one of his uh, lectures, he spoke about perturbations to the microbiome. Right. And if you have an imbalance, you see, the, these terms are vague because they're very broad. Yeah. I mean, you can't home into it. So if you have an imbalance in your microbiota, meaning that you have an increase in more harmful bacteria than than harmless bacteria or beneficial bacteria. So there is a distinction, right? Because you get good and you yeah. get bad. You can get bad, like E. coli or Helicobacter pylori would, would be bad. Right. So, so, so what he's, he called it dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. And he says dysbiosis is related to colorectal cancers and a whole lot of other gut diseases. Um, 
so 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 he phrased that. But the the interesting study that I wanted to raise um, in relation to what Sean is saying is the Ezra Sasa study at uh, Columbia University, mm-hmm. in which they found that uh, pregnant mothers who have gut problems usually then have babies who have gut problems in the first three years of life. Uh-huh. The first four years of life. So that kind of ties in. That, that, yeah, I mean, that is a very interesting point. And, and what is amazing, if I can just uh, move away uh, a little bit, because I'm, I was very fascinated by these ideas. Sasa himself is uh, in, in a department which is, uh, uh, has a neuropsychiatric unit. Mm-hmm. This is Ezra Sasa. I mean, you know, his parents were, we started public health at Wits. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The Sussex. Anyway, um, but I first came across this whole link by reading my favorite neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio. Okay. Antonio Damasio has written some absolutely wonderful books. Mm. And in his Descartes era, he did, he actually did to bring about this idea of the somatic marker hypothesis. Hmm. You have to explain that. He put it so beautifully. He said, look, if your sugar levels dropped, right, then you'll be moving away from homeostasis. You feel hungry. They, they now, the neuroscientists feel that a, 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 a bodily function, a basic bodily function like homeostasis, the regulation of the organism is the direct precursor of emotion, feelings, and consciousness. But that's another story for another time. Well, I think, no, no, but you, I mean, that, that, that really is very important because we're talking about gut, feeling, the somatic, the emotional, the link, you know, this idea of a mind and a body as if they're completely separate components. I think increasingly we're saying, that kind the of mind body duality is actually that, that dichotomy is 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 uh, redundant actually yes there is a mind there is a body but they are not these two siloed entities yeah. well, they are actually all, all one one and the same so yeah. so so Sean yeah. do you have any uh, specific comments in in response no, to uh, what sorry sorry uh, yes yeah, can i just can i just finish this yes point? oh sorry i thought yeah, oh. okay <laughs> so your your blood sugar levels drop you're hungry, you eat, and you restore your blood sugar levels, right? Uh, if there's a golf ball coming towards your head, you don't actually have a rational thought about it and say, well, which way should I turn? Yeah. You, you defend yourself. You defend your face. You move away from it. You, you, it it's a very quick reaction, yeah. right? It's a reflex. Yes. But if you f- fell in love with your, your partner's best friend and you're thinking of, uh, ending your marriage or your relationship, yes. that that creates problems. And you, in your mind, prior to actually making any decision, go through a thousand scenarios of what could happen to your life after this. Unless you're highly impulsive. And he says, where do you feel the pain and the discomfort in your gut, right. not in your brain? Yeah. Yeah, well, so, that's... so that's the somatic marker hypothesis. You fall in love, you, f- you feel the butterflies in your stomach. Mm. 
you know, when you're anxious, you run to the toilet. Right. So, so, so the, the, the neuroscientists and some of the best neuroscientists in the world, Tom Insel, Antonio Damasio, are all now talking about this link as if it's absolutely crucial that, that, that even the psychiatrists understand this. You know, and, and it's fascinating to me that if you uh, read about the work that's coming out of laboratories overseas, and then, and then, and then, and then you think of what's happening at Falkenberg. Uh, I mean, we haven't even begun to have these discussions. Yeah? No, no. I think Stanford University is probably far ahead uh, in this discourse. Well, I think that's where Sean is. Yeah. I think yeah. located yeah. perfectly for this discussion, <laughs> but I think she's located perfectly in terms of where the science is actually going. Mm-hmm. And so obviously she was a perfect guest for the episode. And I was going to get to what Sean does, but I think we'll go with that right now. And I want to just talk a little bit about the South African microbiome initiative in neuroscience. So I mean, there we're linking. Yeah. You know, microbiome, neuroscience, and I think it's called the SA NeuroGut project. Yes, yes. So, so maybe you could just because I I, I saw that the the aim is to unravel the intricate connections between the gut, microbiome, and the brain. So this is exactly what yeah. we're talking about, Sean. This is what you are doing, and so yeah. you need to elaborate. So, um, so what we started a couple of years ago because we have got this interest in the gut microbiome and in psychiatric disorders in my group, yes. um, we decided to, you know, and, and we don't actually, we want to, we want to examine the South African population, not right. only certain populations, but we wanted to extend it to the South African population. So what we decided to do is uh, we, we founded this, this the SA Neurogut, right. um, and it's a completely, we wanted to get the South African population on board. So it's, it's a kind of citizen science, um, project where okay. a person can register on, um, the website. They register their, um, interest and they say, yes, we would like to, um, provide you with a stool sample. Um, so that's what you have a, to do, right? You've got to provide yeah. a stool sample. <laughs> yes, a stool okay. sample and now a, a saliva sample as well, because we want to look at the interaction between the host genome and the gut microbiome as well within okay. the South African population. Um, and then we send them a kit. They send us the kit back. It's all done by courier. Um, and we analyze the um, gut microbiome. Um, and it started during COVID, so it started off quite slowly. Yeah. But it's amazing that um, the amount of um, feedback we've received and the South African population is really interested in what their gut looks like and how it is connected to psychiatric disorders. We obviously have to ask um, them to, to do a few assessments. We can't, we, we can't diagnose anything, but no, no, it's sure. all done by, um, you know, scoring and things like that. So, so, there, so there must be a range of demographic and other mm-hmm. data that you're also gathering at the same time yes. as physical specimens. Precisely, precisely. Right. So, I mean, you know, the South African population is diverse. It's completely it's rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is trying to see, you know, where we can, where there are differences, if there are yeah. differences, and do the differences matter in terms of, for example, diseases or, you know, are 
are the bacteria that we see that are different, are they redundant in their, um, you know, function, which I think probably will be the case. Right. Yeah. So you're looking at a, 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 a an individual or a group of individuals, uh, let's call it yeah. a data set, mm. where we're saying, okay, can we link what we're seeing in the gut with what we understand in terms of what their um, risk profile might be, yes. gender, age, or even potential psychiatric diagnoses without making diagnoses. Yes. Because obviously these are rating scales or yes. questionnaires. Yeah. And so yeah. you're starting to Precisely. look at, shall we say, uh, 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 trends or signals. Let's call them signals. Yes, yes. So we see, yeah, I wouldn't say signature, but it, yeah, signals where we can maybe then, if we see something, we can take it further. Right. Um, yeah. So, so it's in the preliminary stages okay, of actually so finding. I don't want to call it a fishing expedition, but the truth of the matter is you, you're not exactly sure what you're looking for, but you're hoping to find something that yeah. you can build on. And say, yes. okay, now we can drill down into this and actually look at it more specifically. But I Precisely. know that you've, you've got a very specific interest, I think, in trauma, yes. stress, and the impact on the gut microbiome, which I think is very important because we live in a, in a time where stress is a thing and yeah. stress-related illness is the yeah. thing. And yeah. so the question is, what's the link between stress and illness? And could it be? the gut microbiome. So I'm not sure if that's what you're looking at, but I'm questioning that. Yeah, it could very well be the gut microbiome. Um, you know, previous studies have shown in, in animals, preclinical studies have shown that um, germ-free mice, um, so germ-free, they, they don't have any bacteria. They don't have any microbes okay. in them. And they are grown, you know, they're kind of bred like that. Um they, um, it's been shown that certain strains will have, um, an increased, um, HPA axis activity. So your HPA axis is your stress response so that's system your in your body. Hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal. Adrenal axis, yeah. Right. So that's, that kind of, you know, re helps you to respond to stressors. Stress, right. Yes. But if it's overactivated, um, for a long period of time, this is where often problems creep in, disorders creep in. Um, and they found that uh, these germ-free mice um, have activated um, HPA axes or axes. Mm. And when you actually – so what happens is that with these germ-free mice, you can actually colonize them with bacteria from normal mice. Right. So they call them specific pathogen-free mice. So they are mice that are grown normally, but they don't have any pathogenic bacteria. You right. colonize, so you put that bacteria into these germ-free mice – at a certain time, mm -hmm. so only a certain time during development, and they find that this normalizes the HPA axis response. But okay. it doesn't happen at a later stage. So there is a very specific, and this brings me back to the developmental, the brain development, neurodevelopment, and the microbiome and how important it is. Because there's, there's only a specific stage where this happens and it normalizes HPA axis. So there's a, there's a window of opportunity Definitely for normalization yep. with yep. specific bacteria. Yep. But I think what yes. you're saying is, yes, there is a link between yes. Yes. bacteria Definitely. and stress and how you cope with stress. Yes. yes. So my question goes the mm. other way. If you're exposed to stress, 
Mm-hmm. Well, there's two questions. If you're exposed to stress, what does it do to the gut biome? And does the gut biome make you more, I'm going to use a, a word that is very commonly used these days, does it make you more resilient? Does your gut biome protect in terms of how you deal with stress? So I'm asking big questions here for which there, may yeah. no be, there might not be an answer. So, you know, in for example, with um, major depressive disorder, that is a stress-related disorder, PTSD. So we've done um, studies with PTSD, and um, there haven't been many studies with PTSD looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. Just to yeah, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and we've actually found that there is a um, a consortium of kind of four bacteria mm-hmm. um, that can predict not not to a large degree but can predict if um you have PTSD or not right. so there's still it means that there's still something else um that we're missing that we actually need to bring into the equation right. but nonetheless we did find that the there are these four bacterium and funnily enough there were four bacterium that were found to be involved in <laughs> periodontitis so there's, there's a link to the oral microbiome, right? <laughs> so I just want to jump in there quickly because, you know, I came across something a long time ago that said your dental hygiene is linked to your aging. That good dental hygiene is associated with um, less aging. So therefore, there's a good reason why you floss and why you brush. Anyway, I digress. But your, your, your oral flora, never mind your gut flora. I'm not sure if your oral flora are an extension of your gut flora, but your oral flora have an impact on the aging yep. process. But anyway, yep. sorry, I, I digress. Sean. So, so that is, I mean, that we found that really exciting as well. So now we're also looking, we're, we're, you know, starting studies to look at the oral microbiome. But um, what we also found was that individuals who had higher degrees of childhood trauma also had this, um, obviously that it, that, that is a risk factor for psychiatric disorders later on, but they also had a higher um, proportion of these bacteria. So, um, you know, it was a small sample, so we don't want to make any big claims. No but, grand statements. Um, no, <laughs> never, never any grand statements in science. No. <laughs> but um, we're investigating the possibility that perhaps early life trauma you know, it might seed you, seed your microbiome. There might be something going on in your microbiome. And, you know, holistically, you have early life trauma, which might make you more vulnerable to developing psychiatric disorders, maybe PTSD at a later stage in life. So I wanted to touch very briefly on what, seeing as we're speaking about gut mucosa and mucosa, the leaky gut syndrome. Yeah. I mean, to what extent is, I mean, from what I've understood, it's, it's, it's theoretical, but it's a nice theory that yeah. if your mucosa is damaged and you get leakage of yeah. pathological bacteria into the systemic environment, this can itself lead to all kinds of physical and other illnesses. What's your, what's your take on the leaky gut theory? Right. So, um, I, I, can I just respond to one thing, uh, Sean? Is yes. I'm going to tell you, Sean, that my audiences get very excited when I talk about feces transplants. Ah, yes, the, <laughs> the crapsules. Have you heard and, of the crapsules? And, and, and I remember one of the researchers had a slide which says, 
with, with a cartoon on it. It said, uh, Doc, are you serious? You want to put somebody else's shit up my body? <laughs> he says, yes, and it's going to cure you of all your ailments. But uh, as hilarious as it sounds, they have done work with mice, yes. taking timid mice and aggressive mice and transferring Yep. Feces and, and, and finding differences in changing behavior. I heard today, by the way, of a first yeah. randomized control trial that's looking at using that technique for treatment of depression. So, you know, right. so yeah. a cartoon is becoming yeah. <laughs> real life. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to leaky gut syndrome, my, one of my original professors that I admired very much, Professor Solly Marks, Right. the head of gastroenterology, world-renowned uh, yes. gastroenterologist, didn't believe in leaky gut syndrome. Oh. But now the people saying in the literature, anxiety, PTSD, uh, depression for long periods causes mm. leaky gut syndrome. What is very interesting for me is a mucus biochemist is if your good bacteria from your microbiome get into your bloodstream through a leaky gut, they become toxic. Now, I think that's a very important is how good can turn bad. Mm. And you yeah. get what they call pathobiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 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 now I, I've read, but I'm not sure you were talking about the HPA axis that cortisol regulates activity of gut mucosa and provides stability to it to prevent leaky gut syndrome. That's by the HPA axis. Yeah. yeah you, you, okay. You yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, fascinating. I, I just about it. But that, but that's another link. Mm. So mm. you don't want a leaky gut syndrome, but sorry about my bias. You don't want, uh, people who are on a perpetual Western diet who have dysbiosis and a weak mucus barrier. I think that's critical. I think the integrity of the mucosal barrier is essential yeah. for optimal health and but, but, i think and i think diet has a large part to play in terms of that mucosal integrity that's what i've understood so so when we talk about but but i'm i'm focusing on the mucus barrier yes. which is the additional barrier right so when we talking uh, talk about having prebiotics in our diet like eating apples yes. or having asparagus which has inulin or apples which have pectin right those Prebiotics become good probiotics that ensure that there's a good uh, mucus barrier, a thick mucus barrier, and ensure that there is a halt in producing uh, any uh, interleukins or whatever that could cause inflammation. Right. Mm. I mean, that's been shown. There's, there's no doubt. There's wonderful papers coming out. Friend of mine in, in Bristol, Tony Caulfield, has been writing on it. And another colleague I had in Newcastle, Jeffrey Pearson, has just co-authored the paper talking about these issues of how, um, you know, these, these, these bacteria strengthen the mucus barrier and in turn a strong mucus barrier provides food for this uh, bacteria through its oligosaccharides. Yeah. So it's a kind of a loop. Oh, it's a yeah. kind of a loop. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to jump in there because we, we're coming to the end of the, the episode. But there are things that I wanted to talk about that I haven't been able to. I wanted to speak about probiotics for, against, any use, no use. This whole, this whole, this whole concept of potentially 
psychobiotics, where we're looking at probiotics that have specific implications for psychiatric illness and, 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 and the, the association of specific bacteria or the lack thereof with specific yeah. psychiatric conditions. So there's a hell of a lot more that we could have spoken about. But I think that what I can deduce is that the science is still in its infancy. I mean, we've got a lot of preliminary data. We've got methodological limitations. There are multiple confounding factors. But I think we're moving towards something, something more than, than, than what we have. And we are getting into the potential for individuals to really have a very powerful influence on their lives, um, potentially through what they eat. And there again, we get into this whole issue of fiber, Processed foods, one good, one bad. But I think that as with everything I've understood from this conversation, one has to be very careful with, uh, with absolutes. I came across something written by a chap called Paul Davies. He's a, he's a writer and a physicist. And what he said was, most life on earth is microbes. We've only just scratched the surface of the microbial realm. And probably less than 0.1% of microbes have been classified, let alone cultured, or had their genes sequenced. That's Sean, yeah. where you come in. So really, the microbial realm is a mystery. And I really do think that that's important to just get perspective mm. on where we are. So Shannon, on all, listen, I want to thank you. I, I think this conversation could have gone on for a hell of a lot longer. And there's yep. so much more that we could really discuss. But obviously, I think that we've given some perspective on an issue that for patients and practitioners – offers promise, but as yet nothing definitive in terms of specific interventions or predictable outcomes. Although I think it's safe to say that gut health and general health and potentially mental health all start with something fundamental, and that could be diet. So I think that that could be a, a take-home message. So in closing, in a little bit of a history lesson, which was for me a history lesson, in 1826 – there was a French lawyer called Anthelme Brillat Savarin who wrote, Tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. In 1863 or 4, Ludwig Andreas Feuerbach wrote, Man is what he eats. And so we go from the French to the German to the American nutritionist Victor Lindau in 1942. He wrote a book titled, You Are What You Eat, How to Win and Keep Health with Diet. So it seems... The oft-heard expression, you are what you eat, is potentially more relevant today than ever before. So, remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Today, we're talking to Dr. Sham Mudley. Sham is a community pharmacist in the Durban area. He regards himself as a dedicated healthcare professional with a passion for patient care and believes that the pharmacy has a major role to play. Sham, welcome to Beyond Madness or this segment of, of Beyond Madness. And I have one important question to ask you, which I think is a critical one. What value do you as a pharmacist believe you add to patient care? Uh, thanks for that question. It's a great question, and thank you for having me on. Uh, so my primary value really is being a healthcare professional, uh, is trying to influence the health status of our communities, be it in relationship to treatment, 
um, control or prevention of disease, for example, um, illnesses, injuries, and other types of care. Um, I think in most circumstances, the community experiences the pharmacist at the level of being the medicine expert. And that's what everyone knows us for. Uh, and when you fill a prescription, uh, you seek advice on other minor, minor ailments, for example, where the pharmacist may offer solutions using the medicines available to them to prescribe. Uh, this is an important and critical role to ensure that the right medicine is available uh, to the right patient in the correct dosage, uh, being appropriate for optimum outcomes um, with the least possible harm to the patient. So pharmacists and their teams perform a multiplicity of steps as they uh, part of their training that ensures uh, the safety measure. Now, of recent, the community farm communities would have experienced the pharmacist's role in providing the COVID vaccine, for example. And this is not something new to South Africa because we've been doing the influenza vac vaccine, for example, right. for many years. And we've been part of the WHO extended immunization program. And you can so do, and you can do other minor procedures as well. Correct. So as you can see, the focus of the profession uh, of pharmacy has shifted mm. from this technical product oriented to a more patient centered uh, health outcomes and professional services. And this shift generally we refer to it as pharmaceutical care mm. embraces the notion that pharmacists working in collaboration with other healthcare providers undertake responsibilities for patients' outcomes with respect to their medicine therapy. So we are taking on a more clinical role, assisting patients manage their asthma, hypertension, diabetes, for example. And many uh, pharmacies like ourselves will offer a number of services that will assist patients better manage their chronic conditions uh, through medicine therapy management, medicine use review. Uh, and we also provide, for example, uh, asthma technique, uh, uh, inhaler technique, for right. example, or to individualize a patient's uh, asthma care and working out an asthma plan for them. And most pharmacies in the country will have a clinic. And it's important that patients take advantage of this important service. Um, helping patients to stop smoking, for example, mm -hmm. alter their diet or get involved in self-care uh, with appropriate information makes a difference to their chronic conditions. Okay. So pharmacists are always available to the community to discuss sexual health matters, for example, and advise on mental health. We recently launched uh, the Pharmacy Safe Spaces where victims of violence, especially gender-based violence, can report and access assistance from the pharmacist who will provide linkage to essential counseling, care and support. Sham, I think you are describing uh, a situation that has become much more holistically therapeutic where you're going beyond simply dispensing, but you're actually getting involved at many different layers and many different levels of, of, of patient care, which I think is very important because I'm not sure that everybody necessarily fully appreciates the extent of, of, of uh, uh, options that are available at your local pharmacist, or not necessarily every pharmacist, but it's certainly possible within the context of the pharmacy. Sham, I want to thank you, and I'm going to wish you all the very best for all the projects that you're involved in. I didn't get to mention all of them, but I see that you're a very busy man, and you've got a lot of irons in the fire. So lovely talking to you, and all the very best for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care.